0: when human beings want to tell stories we often speak tales of the warrior whether one reads about saul and david the holy warlords of ancient israel or about diomedes and ajax and achilles of the achaeans and hector of troy or of the samurai or of the shaolin or of the zulu or of the berserkers what surfaces over and over is a sense that people who deal their deadly wares in the in the face of murderous enemies might have something to teach us about being human beings. Even Christian theologian Stanley Hauerwas, famous for his insistence on nonviolence for the disciples of Jesus, points to marine boot camp, unlike the modern Protestant seminary, as a place where real moral formation happens in late modern America. Dr. Charles Hackney, associate professor of psychology at Briarcrest College in Saskatchewan, explores in greater detail the ways in which warrior training develops human virtues, and in his 2010 book, Martial Virtues, Lessons in Wisdom, Courage, and Compassion from the World's Greatest Warriors, he investigates the ways that martial arts schools from West and East claim to, and in fact do develop, human potential for excellence. Christian Humanist Profiles wants to welcome Dr. Hackney as this episode's special guest. How are you doing today, Charles?
1: I'm uh, doing pretty well, Nathan. Getting over a virus, so if I uh, cough in the middle of a sentence, uh, excuse me. Oh, certainly, there's no
0: uh, apology needed. Uh, Charles, you mentioned early in this book that your approach grows out of positive psychology, an approach to the discipline that differs from the way many of us think about psychology. Uh, before we get into you know, the, the core of the book, tell our listeners a bit about positive psychology and how you came to adopt it as a framework for this project.
1: Uh, well, to uh, to talk about what positive psychology is and why it is, I'm going to start with the influence of World War II. Uh, so World War II caused a major change in the field of psychology. The, uh, the end of the war thought, saw uh, thousands of soldiers returning home with combat-related anxiety problems. Uh, in the U.S., for example... Um, the U.S. Army saw over half a million medical discharges connected with combat-related uh, trauma, uh, what um, we would currently call post-traumatic stress disorder, what in World War I they called shell shock, World War II they called combat fatigue. Uh, and the existing psychiatric establishment was not equipped to uh, handle them. Uh, so what ended up happening was the uh, the U.S. government started dumping truckloads of money on universities to establish new clinical psychology training programs. And um, uh, clinical psychology uh, rose from being a um, relatively Uh, obscure and disrespected specialization where there was even some debate whether or not they were going to be allowed into the American Psychological Association at all, uh, to being by the early 60s uh, the dominant force in mainstream psychology. And uh, in 1962, uh, there were more clinical psychologists in the American Psychological Association than non-clinical psychologists. Uh, And to this day, the the APA is dominated by clinical psychology. Now, in 1998... Uh, Martin Seligman became president of the APA, and in his presidential address, he argued that this is that psychology had become unbalanced, um, with the with most of our resources going to understanding and treating uh, the negative side of life. Uh, for example, we uh, uh, we know f- far more about depression than we know about happiness. Uh, we know more about dysfunctional families than we know about highly functional families. Uh, Within social psychology, we know more about uh, conflict than we do about cooperation. Uh, We know about, um, in organizations, bad leaders making stupid decisions than we do about good leaders making wise decisions. So Seligman argues that what we should do is... Uh, Not eliminate this negative side, this negative side is good, uh, but expand psychology uh, to the point that we're putting just as much emphasis on how life can go right uh, and how to make it righter as uh, we have on how life can go wrong and how we can make it less wrong. So that's positive psychology. Positive psychology focuses on uh, positive subjective experiences, uh, positive character traits, positive uh, um, individuals, uh, positive social organizations. And over the past 15 years, uh, this field has taken off. Uh, So in in January 2000, uh, American Psychologist ran a special issue introducing positive psychology. Uh, 2004, we have uh, the publication of a major reference volume, Character Strengths and Virtues. Um, 2005 we see the first masters uh, in applied positive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania uh, 2007 uh, Claremont Graduate University launches the first uh, doctorates in positive psychology uh, 2008 the US Army started uh, uh, the uh, the comprehensive soldier fitness program which is based on um, positive psychology so this uh, this field has it, it it's just exploded it's been a lot of fun very exciting uh and uh, a lot of uh a uh, lot of areas uh, to work in a lot of questions being answered lots of new questions being raised lots of arguments and challenges and practical applications all it's it's all cool it's fun
0: it sounds like a winner and, and that uh and so you now i can catalog of strengths and virtues is that what you called it
1: uh character strengths and virtues
0: character so okay i uh, yep. the, the abbreviation CSV recurs throughout your book, so that's a, oh, yes. a good abbreviation to know when you start into this one. Well, another important intellectual influence on your project is Alistair McIntyre, someone who I teach and enjoy a great deal, uh, and specifically his well-known book, After Virtue. Uh, talk a bit about his distinction between first-order and second-order goods and the extent to which that distinction influenced your own between victory and goodness as the goals of the martial arts
1: well when i I, when i draw a distinction i'm i'm not setting the two in opposition to each other uh, although that that can sometimes happen uh what i'm saying is that victory by itself is not enough uh for uh for warriors um especially when we start and Because I'm a fan of McIntyre, I keep coming back to the teleological question. Um, When we ask the question about the purpose of warriors, uh, why have a category of society that does this sort of thing? And the reason that warriors exist is to protect the community. And uh, if you have only the the qualities that empower victory, but not those that empower goodness, uh, then... You don't fulfill that telos. The, the community is not protected. The community ends up being endangered. Uh, Plato talked about this in uh, Book Two of the Republic. Where he talks about uh, the psychological characteristics of his guardian class. Uh, he talked e- exactly about this problem. He said that if uh, the guardians don't have a philosophic disposition, a gentleness, a love of learning, uh, then they would turn on us just as likely as defend us. Mm-hmm. And uh, we saw this uh, in the uh, very specifically in the early Middle Ages. Ninth, uh, tenth century Western knights were were, were amoral monsters. Uh, historian um, F.J.C. Uh, Hernshaw said that a knight of the of that era was psychologically uh, no more interesting than a modern machine gun. <laughs> so uh, as long as we kept these people aimed at Saracens and Magyars. They were at least useful monsters, but as soon as they're not campaigning against foreigners, they were more trouble than they were worth. They were, they're, they're, they're terrorized the peasants, um, plundered churches, killed nuns, warred against themselves, uh, destroyed property. Uh, they, they, they were a, really a pain for everybody. Uh, so, by, This is why by the time we get to the 11th century, we've got um, the uh, the nobility, we've got the clerics uh, strenuously pushing chivalric ideals, uh, so that we can have both victory and goodness, uh, mm-hmm. so that the the, the, the role is uh, properly fulfilled rather than undermined.
0: All right, all right. Uh, yeah, and, and, and it's interesting, you know, in that history, I mean, you sort of led right up to the beginning of the Crusades, uh, which, you know, I I think that we can probably say we're not a, an unqualifiedly positive development, but by that argument you could do worse.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) All right. All right. Well, one of the things that I really liked about your book, Charles, is the way that you arranged it. So I want to talk about that a little bit. The bulk of it uh, treats particular virtues that you frame as sort of common across cultures. And you start with courage and move on to justice, temperance, wisdom, benevolence. We're going to talk about some of those in turn. Uh, I like the fact that you make what I think of as a very medieval move, which is to say locating virtues in a system of relationships with other virtues. And, of course, Aristotle was doing it before the medievals, but I, I largely think of you know people like John Gower, Dante, folks like that. For instance, you frame persistence as a species of the genus courage, honor as a species of the genus justice. Uh, your specific virtue chapters also contain a common set of I guess, sections at the end of each one about cultivating each virtue in the self and then cultivating it in others. Uh, let me ask you this. I mean, the, this arrangement of things, is this something that you set out to do when you were first building this book, so to speak, or is this something that an editor suggested? How did the book come to be arranged the way that it is? Uh,
1: well, that this was my idea from the beginning, and I ended up... Uh, getting this approach from positive psychology and also from uh my readings in virtue ethics uh when i was an undergraduate at george fox college i uh, i minored in philosophy and did an independent study on after virtue and i thought that was i thought it was fascinating i thought it was really interesting i've I've maintained an interest in virtue ethics and uh that sort of thing has uh, um continued to influence my scholarly work as a psychologist i do uh fair amount outside of this area that also involves areas of interaction between psychology and philosophy and between psychology and philosophy and theology. So in uh, putting together this book, uh, I uh, had done a a certain amount of reading and in the uh, the philosophical literature about what are virtues, uh, how are virtues organized, how do virtues work, uh, how what should be on the list, what should not be on the list, and uh, in both positive psychology and in virtue ethics, I, I, I came across this idea from multiple different sources. So. Um, Rosalind Hursthouse, Hursthouse talks about how the virtues don't stand alone. Instead, they, uh, her terms they intertwine with and mutually support each other. Uh, and McIntyre, in uh, uh, Who's Justice, Which Rationality, uh, he says that the unity of the virtues is found in the fact that the perfection of one virtue requires all the other virtues. Uh, and you, so you don't get to flourish by only cultivating one virtue. Um, and... This sort of hierarchical organization sub-virtues nested within higher-order virtues, that's another one that I found a lot, Uh, and again, from multiple perspectives. So um, looking, for example, at um, uh, Joseph Piper's book on the four cardinal virtues, uh, and uh, also Inaza Netobe's work on Bushido, uh, they both take the same approach to courage and say that courage is an overarching virtue uh, that has two sub-virtues, courage as active and courage as passive or or static courage. Uh, So you can display one without the other, but they're both forms of courage. Uh, And so in in positive psychology, we find the same thing. So um, uh, talked a minute ago about uh, character strengths and virtues, uh, and yes, we call it the CSV, and that's deliberate. Uh, the creation of this this book uh, was deliberately intended to be a positive psychology counterpart to the DSM. Uh, so I, I while, wondered about that. Yeah, uh, that's um, the they set out to create what they called a manual of the sanities. So while the, the DSM, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, is our catalog of um, psychological disorders, uh, uh, the, the CSV is meant to be a catalog of um, uh, characteristics that uh, empower flourishing and high levels of functioning. And uh, in, in the CSV, they also take this sort of uh, interactive and hierarchical organization. So, uh, the volume's organized around six major virtues, uh, and at that level, uh, you have to possess all six in order to be considered an excellent person. Uh, but those six are then, uh, broken down into 24 specific character strengths. Uh, each one has its own particularity, even though it is a representative of that virtue category. And, uh, uh, you will most likely not display all of the possible um, uh, character strengths within a virtue category, uh, but you'll probably you, you may possess one or two.
0: Mm-hmm. That makes some sense. That makes some sense. Uh, how about the parts? And this is at the end of each chapter. I mean, uh, are are the And I don't know if you want to call them techniques or if you want to call them practices after McIntyre or how you want to name them. Uh, But the things that you do to develop these things in self and in others, uh, were those also part of the book's original plan or is that something that kind of developed as you researched the descriptive part of the book?
1: Uh, Well, I wouldn't call them practices. Okay. Um, going with McIntyre's approach, uh, mostly because uh, I argue, I argue in this book and, and some of my other published material uh, that uh, the martial arts themselves should be thought of as a practice along McIntyrean lines. So, so I, so I would call them techniques. Okay. Um, and this, um, I don't remember whether or not this was my idea from the get-go, but it was certainly an idea early on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to get very practical about this. I, I wanted to. I wanted this book to sort of range all over the place, from uh, the very abstract philosophical discussions uh, and historical uh, and cross-cultural analyses, all the way to the very practical question of uh, what what you might do if, for example, you are a martial arts instructor and you want to uh, foster these personal uh, strengths in your students, or if you are uh, a, a practitioner who wants to develop them in yourself, so that it, it seemed like a natural organization to me.
0: Okay, good, good. Well, one of them, and and this was fairly early on in the book, your your chapter on courage. Uh, I was fascinated precisely by that crossover between <laughs> the psychological and the philosophical, the descriptive and the prescriptive, uh, in that courage section. <laughs> I'll admit, it troubled me uh, <laughs> when you started citing Pavlov in your discussion of building courage. Uh, and, you know, my fear as I read this is that you were going to treat the brave man as simply a well-conditioned response machine. Uh, am I oversimplifying fa- Pavlov? It has been, after all, about 20 years since I took Psychology 101.
1: <laughs> well, uh, well, to the hardcore behaviorist, every man is simply a well-conditioned response machine.
0: And I'm asking if you are one.
1: <laughs> I am not. No, uh, no. Too much Aristotle, too much existentialism in my psychology. Um, so no, I, I am not a radical behaviorist. Very good. <laughs> um, so my point about Pavlov was to try and talk about fear as a response that can be altered through uh, through practice or, or through habit. Formation. So my my Pavlov connection was um, uh, the practice uh, the uh, the technique of systematic desensitization. Uh, So in that approach, behavior therapists, uh, and and this the classic example of this is uh, the treatment of a phobia, and so that's one of the reasons why it works. uh, behavior therapists will expose uh, phobic clients to whatever it is that they fear uh, in controlled doses at gradually increasing levels of intensity uh, while training the client to stay calm in the face of this thing that they fear uh, until it gets to the point that the, the client can remain calm even in the presence of high-intensity Uh, exposure to whatever the object of their phobia is Uh, and so this is used for a lot of the classic phobias this is also uh, used for things like uh, people who are nervous about flying or have a fear of public speaking and uh, the point that I wanted to make there was that uh, martial training can itself serve as a form of conditioning uh, in which we are presented with fearful stimuli And we learn the habit of responding calmly with whatever the response is that's called for in that particular situation. Uh, And uh, as a more general method, I can see training as uh, a way of uh, building courage, uh, the ability to be afraid but act anyway. Uh, For example, uh, in judo, uh, there is a, a, a basic shoulder throw, uh, Seoi Nagi. Uh, and when I get thrown with Seoi Nagi, I am, very briefly, airborne. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a very out-of-control feeling. I don't like the feeling, and it scares me. Every time. Uh, doesn't matter how many times uh, I, I've practiced this throw, doesn't matter how many times that uh, I've been thrown using this, it's still scary uh but if that's the throw that we're working on today i i let my partner throw me uh and then i pick myself up and i let him throw me again mm-hmm. uh and uh back when i was living in ontario i trained with the academy of european medieval martial arts and uh we would spar and the, the swords would be blunt but these guys are still swinging big chunks of metal at my head <laughs> uh and uh you know even if you're wearing uh, wearing a helmet, so we, we wore fencing helmets when we do this, that still hurts. And I've actually... I still have a sizable dent in my helmet uh, from a substantial hit that I took. And One time I spent several weeks walking around with a bloody smashed thumb where I had been hit by a sword. Uh, but I still showed up for class, geared up, kept going. So... That's that. That's how I see this: the connection between conditioning, uh, Pavlovian conditioning, and building courage. Uh, this repetitive exposure to fearful stimuli and getting in the habit of responding calmly in the face of things that scare you.
0: All right. Well, since you brought up Plato's Republic, that's always a text that I can appeal to. Uh, early in that dialogue, Socrates talks about courage as fearing the loss of autonomy. <coughs> more than one fears death as as one operative de- definition of courage. Is that roughly what this conditioning exercise is trying to get at?
1: Uh, not so much. Okay. Uh, that sounds more like uh, one fear overpowering another fear. Okay. Uh, which does fall within certain other approaches to courage and uh, other uh, approaches to uh, techniques for Uh, cultivating courage, but not the Pavlovian.
0: Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Well, moving on, uh, another virtue that that gave me some trouble, and and this Charles, this interview is largely going to be about virtues that (laughs) give me trouble, so I'll just go ahead and confess that up front. Uh, Okay. It's one that has, oh, I, I suppose it's acquired a bad name among folks like me who have grown up in the American Midwest and moved to the American South, and that is the virtue of honor. Uh, you insist that honor is a good thing, a species of justice, uh, and that the use of that word as an excuse for sort of alcohol-soaked belligerence uh, mm-hmm. distorts a concept that's generally good. So uh, convince me, Charles. Convince me that honor is a word that I should embrace again.
1: Oh, yeah, I I know exactly the kind of thing you're talking about. Uh, I'd, I'd call that uh, honor when you're doing it wrong. Or maybe the dark side of honor. Okay. And uh, this, honor's always had this problem. So when that people tend to do it wrong in fairly consistent ways. Uh, I mean, in the Iliad, Mm -hmm. uh, the Iliad starts with a squabble over a matter of honor. Achilles' big hissy fit is over exactly this kind of status-related posturing that you're talking about. Um so yeah so here's how honor is supposed to work. Um so honor is on the one hand social. Uh for something to be honored requires a community to deem it praiseworthy. Uh problem there is not everything that is honored is honorable mm-hmm. and vice versa. Um uh, so ideally for something to be honourable, it should be the kind of thing that a community consisting of honourable people would deem praiseworthy. Um, which means that um, even if the public honouring never actually happens, the thing itself is still honourable. And I, I appeal a bit to Cicero uh, in mm-hmm. this, uh, in uh, De Officius Honor, um uh, he, he, he talks about uh there are a number of reasons why something that is honorable might not technically or might not in actuality be honored. So maybe mm-hmm. there weren't any witnesses or maybe it was witnessed by people of low character or something, whatever. Um,
0: and that has a Socratic pe- uh, <clears throat> pedigree as well in the Crito. Uh, Socrates memorably tells Crito not to worry about what people think, but about what good people think.
1: There you go. So this, uh, while honor is on the one hand social, on the other hand, uh, there is a division that is uh, pushed uh, between um, social status and honor. So honor is also an individual thing, independent of whether or not the person receives actual praise or actual social status. And so honor becomes, uh, in this case, more about personal integrity than about social status. Mm -hmm. Uh, so now I I do describe, uh, both sides, the, the social and the individual as forms of justice. So when someone does something that is honorable, uh, they in fact deserve to be honored.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And so part of my application, uh, when I talk about cultivating justice as a personality characteristic, uh, is, uh, I encourage readers to honor that which is honorable, to offer praise where praise is due. Uh, And so this not only uh, discharges justice toward the person who has done the honorable act, but gets you in the habit of uh, being a just person, uh, doing just things, uh, acting according to the principles of dessert. And then when honor is looked at as integrity, uh, I call it justice, and I, I sort of still connect it to status, because honor as integrity is still never completely disentangled from Mm -hmm. its social connection um, because we connect it to self-concept and uh, the honorable person, uh, honorable people see themselves as uh, refusing to engage in immoral acts because they don't see themselves as low enough to engage in things like that. So uh, if I decide not to do wrong, uh, if I decide not to cheat, not to lie, uh, part of my decision would, uh, the belief that I'm supposed to be better than that.
0: Mm-hmm. That makes some sense. Uh, now, I'm, I'm going to exercise my finely honed powers of interpretation here, Charles. Uh, and I'm just going to venture that you have some reservations about the American <coughs> culture of self-esteem. Yes, uh, I do. <laughs> Uh, listeners, if you go read this book, you will see just what an understatement I, I ventured there. Uh, Charles talk for a few minutes about your critique of self-esteem as a sort of ultimate term and on your way through town, tell our listeners how humility stands as a species of temperance.
1: Okay, here we go. <laughs> uh, well, uh, to begin with, Uh, I'd start by pointing out that mainstream psychology has never been quite as on board with the self-esteem movement as have the seeming never-ending parade of self-appointed parenting and education experts. Um, There have been, I I can think uh, off the top of my head of one um, major psychologist who has argued that All our problems come from not having enough self-esteem, and if we raise self-esteem, everything will be better, but that's sort of just kind of him off by himself. Most of us have never been quite as sanguine about this idea that we can trace uh, such a large range of psychological problems to not feeling good enough about you, and that if we just get people feeling good about themselves, and especially children. And we, we, we work this into all sorts of stuff. Uh, this gets used as the justification for things. So uh, why should we, um, you know, why should we enroll children in this program? Well, because it will raise their self-esteem. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And we, uh, uh, we, we develop curricula uh, that is supposed to raise self-esteem. We develop, you know, the coloring books for self-esteem, um, <laughs> picture books for self-esteem. Uh, when I start talking about this in class, the one that I really get in on, uh, uh, there's a book that uh, came out in the early 90s, uh, The Lovables in the Kingdom of Self-Esteem. And if any listeners <laughs> want to Google this, uh, it is there is a partial available at uh, Google Books, and you can also see some of it at uh, its Amazon uh, page. Um, so I'm not going to ask you to actually buy it so that you can see what I'm talking about, uh, <laughs> but you can peek. And the idea is that children are supposed to read this and it's supposed to make them feel good about themselves. And you open this thing and it is just unabashedly uh, Edenic, paradisical uh, imagery here. Uh, you you go right in there, and uh, there's these finely wrought gates with flowers and plants and a sunrise coming over the mountains. And uh, it says in there, uh, so this is what, the, so the children are supposed to read this. They're supposed to repeat this. So it says, the gates of the kingdom are opening wide as you say these words three times with pride. I'm lovable. I'm lovable. I'm lovable. Wow. Yeah, I, don't think, I,
0: don't th- I don't think I've ever been to
1: this planet, Charles. <laughs> Sounds like a nice kingdom, um, <laughs> if you're a narcissist. <laughs> um, and then once you get in, it's full of all these cartoon uh, animals that want to talk to you about how wonderful you are. Uh, so there's uh, an owl that wants to talk to you about how uh, capable and uh, great you are and all the good stuff that you can do. Uh, and there's a lion that wants to talk about your courage. And uh, So you're supposed to read this and you're supposed to be, oh, yeah, I'm awesome. I'm great. I'm wonderful. Um, problem is, and uh, from this, I'm strongly influenced by uh, especially the work of uh, social psychologist Roy Baumeister, Uh, And his work on Uh, self-esteem. Self-esteem is overrated. Okay. Uh, When we actually start looking at uh, what happens when we measure self-esteem. And for a number of different reasons. Uh, For one thing, we find high levels of self-esteem among people who we would not consider paragons of psychological functioning. Uh, So when Baumeister and colleagues uh, started uh, collecting this data, uh, if you go into prisons, for example, uh, contrary to what some of the self-esteem gurus would tell you, uh, prisons tend to be bastions of high Uh, self-esteem. Prisoners tend to, for the most part, feel pretty good about themselves, especially certain categories of prisoners. Uh, The researchers found high levels of self-esteem among ethnocentrists. Uh, So apparently being a member of the supreme racial category makes you feel pretty good about yourself, uh, by comparison at least. Um, High self-esteem among gang leaders, um, among gang members. uh, The the leaders tended to have higher self-esteem than the rank and file. Um, High self-esteem among people who'd been arrested for terrorist acts. uh, High self-esteem among people who'd been arrested for sexual assault. Uh, In fact, if you uh, talk with people who work with convicted sex criminals... Um, One of the things that uh, recurs is that they don't think they have a problem. They feel pretty good about themselves. Their self-esteem tends to be fairly high. Uh, A colleague of mine back when I was in uh, New York Uh, Worked with convicted rapists, and uh, one of the first things that uh, she had to do in order to start them on the process of learning to not do that anymore was to get them to feel bad about themselves, uh, to get them to feel bad about what they've done. Uh, Instead, uh, rapists tend to hold to the self justifying uh, rationalizations that allow them to maintain high levels of self-esteem. Uh, there's even a term for this in the literature. They call them rape myths, uh, ideas that, uh, these individuals will hold that can allow them to convince themselves that they are good people. They are wonderful. It's everybody else who has a problem with what they did. It's everybody else who just doesn't understand. So when looked at from that perspective, um, just having high self-esteem didn't do anything. Uh, also, researchers have found that uh, high self-esteem that isn't based on anything. So, if I have self-esteem for no other reason than the, you know, the the, the lovable toucan in the book told me that I I'm awesome, um, it tends to be uh, fairly fragile and uh, defensive self-esteem. Uh, so what do I do if I feel good about me and then I run across someone who does not agree with the talking cartoon animal uh, that I'm lovable and wonderful? Well, what have I got? Uh, well, what ends up being found is higher levels of aggressiveness uh, when this artificial self-esteem is challenged. So uh, what we what we should do... Uh, According to Baumeister, uh, is focus on what actually is associated with higher levels of psychological functioning, uh, which, uh, for Baumeister, one of his major areas of research is self-regulation. Uh, people with high levels of self-control, uh, high levels of self-control tend to be associated with uh, success in pretty much every domain of life, better emotional health, uh, better um, psychological stability, uh, better relationships, better academic success, better career success, lower criminality, better physical health, greater longevity. Uh, There is almost no downside to having high levels of Mm -hmm. self-control. So we should be doing that. And then as a as a fun side effect what ends up happening is that you then get uh high levels of self-esteem as an outcome variable rather than an input uh and so you get self-esteem as a side effect uh based on actual accomplishments which does not show the same pattern of um ego defensive aggressiveness Mm -hmm. uh and uh if anybody's interested, I uh, Baumeister and Tierney came out with a book recently uh, entitled Willpower, uh, which summarizes a lot of the research in this area.
0: All right. <laughs> let, let me ask you a follow-up on that, because I, okay. and a, as with, unfortunately, too much of the recent psychological uh, literature I'm familiar with, I picked it up somewhere. I didn't write down where it was I read, read it, so now I forget where I read it. So tell me if I'm making this up, or if you've read this as, as, as well, but uh, I heard of a study in which self-control was a, I mean, something that really didn't fluctuate in intensity over the course of a lifetime. So, in other words, the kids who could eat just one potato chip when they were four also ended up the ones with PhDs when they were 30.
1: The marshmallow test.
0: The, that's a, yes. marshmallows, marshmallows. I love the marshmallow tips.
1: test. Go ahead. Yes. <laughs> um, <clears throat> well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with uh, my usual answer, and uh, if there are any of my students who are listening to this podcast, you know what's coming. It's complicated. That's u- that, that's usually the first words that come out of my mouth when someone asks me a question about psychology.
0: Yeah, okay. My my, my stock answer is it's not that simple. So
1: I I, <laughs> I can speak because- up. Kindred spirits. <laughs> yes. Um, the uh, 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 Walter Michelle's research on uh, delay of gratification, this uh, uh, this marshmallow test, is um, now it, it does show that uh, cultivating. High levels of self control, the ability in this case to resist temptation uh, in childhood, continues to pay benefits years and in some cases decades. Uh, a few years ago, there was a study that came out, um, was, which was a 40 year follow up with this same group of kids mm-hmm. uh, who um, had taken the marshmallow test uh, at age uh, four. And Uh, There are even neurological differences, uh, differences in the ways that their brains uh, react uh, in uh, cognitive self-control tasks. But it is also possible to cultivate self-control, to increase self-control strength. Um, And this works very well with a virtue ethic perspective because the way to do it is practice. Okay. Uh, If you practice self-control... Uh, you can achieve long-term gains in self-control. So the answer is, it's both.
0: Okay, very good. (laughs) As is so often the case, as in so often the case. Uh, Well, Charles, when I got to the section on wisdom, uh, I was skeptical along another (laughs) line of uh, eyebrow-raising, and this suspicion was that you were rolling way too many things into one giant conceptual burrito on this one uh but i'm here to be persuaded otherwise you're here to persuade me uh how are platonic sophia zen consciousness renaissance judgment and sun tzu's art of war all members of the same genus that we can intelligibly call wisdom
1: it's complicated So part of what I did in preparation for this was uh, I spent a good amount of time in uh, the scholarly literature on on wisdom. Uh, when I when I present this material, especially when I talk about this with my students, I show them pictures of Raphael's fresco, the School of Athens, and especially those two figures in the middle. Uh, so for any listeners that might not know, School of Athens, uh, it's, uh, it depicts classical philosophy. It's covered with figures who represent great thinkers and their schools of thought, right in the middle, uh, are Plato and Aristotle, and they're debating. Uh, And as they debate, Plato is pointing up, while Aristotle is pointing out. And that's always worked for me as a good visual representation of uh, this general consensus across uh, wisdom researchers uh, of two major kinds of wisdom. Uh, what um, psych- psychological researchers Paul Wink and Ravenna Helson called uh, transcendent wisdom and practical wisdom. So transcendent wisdom is about the big questions, meaning of life, uh, what is the true, the good, the beautiful, what happens after we die, uh, what's godlike, uh, and so on. Uh, and then practical wisdom is about solving situation-specific problems uh, at a more concrete Level. So making good career choices, raising raising children well, handling interpersonal conflict, uh, being able to give good practical advice, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, and so what I argue is that so uh, Platonic Sophia and Zen Consciousness uh, are both about understanding the transcendent truths, uh, life, the universe, and everything, uh, while Renaissance Judgment uh, and Sun Tzu's Art of War are more about how to effectively attain desired goals. Now, that being said, uh, I will throw in a mea culpa. Um, my attempt at in this book was to try and present a general cross-cultural idea of the virtues, and especially the, the warrior virtues. <laughs> um, and I am aware that I am sacrificing a lot of particularity. Mm. When I do that, so if I say that there are enough general similarities between Plato and Zen Buddhism that I can make some sort of common statement about both, that's not even close to me saying that they're the same. Okay. Um, and and this this does end up being one of the criticisms of uh, positive psychological work, including things like uh, character strengths and virtues uh in that it is a, an attempt at uh developing a universal approach something that is uh sufficiently generic that it is applicable across cultures and across historical periods uh, that has that has opened positive the positive psychologists up to a certain degree of criticism uh, so, uh psychologist louis sundararajan uh, has criticized this approach. Uh, she um, she compared it to, to wine. Uh, it is technically possible to analyze lowest common denominator characteristics of wine and create cheap, generic, mass-produced wine. It is technically wine, but who'd want to drink it? Mm-hmm. Uh, what makes wine worth drinking? What makes wine interesting and 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 good is precisely its its particularities, uh, the specificity of one kind uh, compared to another. Uh, and we are going to have to say the same thing about flourishing. Uh, what we're what is going on in positive psychology right now does strongly emphasize. The creation of generic, um, universally applicable ideas about flourishing, but they they tend to lose a certain degree of robustness. Mm-hmm. Um, Not in, in my work, I am hoping to address this, uh, and I've already addressed this in some of my other scholarly work. Uh, some of my publications have involved Christian approaches. positive psychology, Mm -hmm. uh, and some of my arguments that uh, a specifically Christian understanding of flourishing um, carries with it certain advantages, and having a robust particularity is part of that, As in addition to certain conceptual things. I don't want to go off on a whole Christian positive psychology uh, (laughs) sidetrack, because if I do that, we're not coming back. (laughs) <laughs> this is what happens if you get me excited. Uh-huh. I, have, I, I do have a number of projects on the go, and one of the things that I am uh, hoping to come out with uh, in a few years, I mean, it, it's still in the, the early stages, uh, is a follow-up work uh, trying to look specifically at a Christian approach to the martial arts uh, informed by some of the same ideas, but getting specifically into Christian ideas about combat sports, about self-defense, um, and seeing uh, see, seeing what I can come up with uh, within this particular understanding of flourishing.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. All right. I can, I can understand that. And well, what's interesting to me is that, I mean, as you were describing, you know, the criticisms of your work, I, I, I'll admit, I find it hard imagining those criticisms coming from the discipline that I learned as psychology when I was an undergrad, because it seemed if anything to be a sort of flattening universalizing sort of thing, you know, you might call it these different things, but what's really going on is this underlying, you know, uh, Neurobiological thing. Now, I, I will say that you know my my psychology one hundred and one professor uh, was very sensitive to the fact that you know that was something to be thought about rather than assumed. Uh, but that's the the picture of the academic discipline psychology that I get. I mean, once again, am I am I stereotyping here, or is that tendency to some extent there?
1: It's complicated. <laughs> it, that is a partially correct impression. Uh, what psychologists try to do is both. We try to address uh, humanity generally and also specifics uh, w- within my own field. So uh, my my PhD is in uh, personality and social psychology. Uh, within personality psychology, uh, we try to answer the general question, uh, what is personality overall? So how can we describe what makes up basic human personality? Mm. Uh, and, but we also want to ask the question, how do we account for individual differences in personality, uh, the, the things that make you you as opposed to somebody else? Mm. And uh, even the uh, researchers who take this strongly uh, neuroscientific approach uh, will say that uh, there is such a thing as universal human nature. There, uh, there is such a thing as uh, the, uh, the 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 way that the human brain is organized in advance of experience, mm-hmm. but that experience modifies that. So we are definitely going to bring in cross-cultural differences. We are definitely going to bring in uh, historical cohort effects in development. We are definitely going to bring in formative experiences, uh, upbringing, uh, and uh, individuality uh-huh. into the mix. So the answer is going to be both.
0: Okay, okay, because that—that's one of the things that I'll admit. You know, as a, an English and philosophy major as an undergrad. Uh, I found most troubling about psychology, as I saw the psychology majors doing it, uh, is that I wanted to give a rich, you know, Clifford Geertz, you know, thick description of the fact that you know I I spent a childhood idolizing Sherlock Holmes and you know other sort other such literary figures, uh, and they wanted to you know put a four letter Myers Briggs ISTJ on me and have done with it. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Um,
0: <laughs> and that might have been the fact that they were 21, so I, I won't discount Well, I,
1: that. Yes, that is, <laughs> that is going to be part of it, and uh, if you start me on the Myers-Briggs, that's going to be another thing where we're going to launch and we're never coming back.
0: Okay, all right. I, I, I will uh, refrain then. I will refrain.
1: <laughs> although I will say uh, INTJ over here.
0: Oh, okay. so, I, uh, and, and see, I... I I had to jot down those letters before I started recording, so I'd remember which ones they were. So I right. <laughs> that's I, that's I how am much...
1: y- yes, I am the evil overlord.
0: Okay, that's how much yeah. I think about Myers Briggs. Well, I, I want to follow up though. I mean, because this line of inquiry is interesting <laughs> to me. Uh, one objection that I can imagine McIntyre himself lodging against the approach of your book is that a Taoist warrior, just to think of one example, would probably regard her non-resistance to an attacker differently from someone thinking of herself in terms of a sort of patriotic American muscular resistance to corruption, bad ideology, evil, so on and so forth. Now, given the complex, we're going to grant complex, and narrative-framed character of excellence in McIntyre, does this common list move that sort of organizes the bulk of your book stand in your mind as a departure from McIntyre, Or do you see this as continuing the project of after-virtue in a way that's less obvious?
1: Uh, I would call it at least a partial departure. Uh, In after-virtue, McIntyre does say that uh, universal uh, virtue lists, universal theories of virtue, are and should be viewed with suspicion. Mm -hmm. Uh, He never attempts a definitive list himself. Because he's um, suspicious of them. He is suspicious of them. Uh, and I I rechecked my notes on his later work, and uh, even by the time we get to uh, dependent rational animals, he isn't really doing, he still isn't really doing that. Uh, however, part of McIntyre's project uh, is uh, to argue for the existence of universal human criteria for flourishing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so uh, there is such a thing for McIntyre as a human telos. Uh, there is a uh, universal excellence for humans as humans. And uh, so that, that there is part of that, mm-hmm. but... Uh, when he starts talking about this, um, our conceptions of that universal good life are all situated in rival traditions. So when he gets to the end of After Virtue, and, uh, this is one of the things that I liked about, uh, your discussion of, uh, uh McIntyre in, uh, the recent, uh, podcast on tradition, uh, McIntyre wraps up After Virtue, uh, talking about, uh, a set of local communities, Pursuing their own conceptions of the good. Mm -hmm. So
0: the famous line about not a new Trotsky, but a new, but very different St.
1: Benedict. New Benedict, yes. (laughs) So the fact that I am trying to put together a um, universal catalog of the virtues uh, would be a departure from McIntyre. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, this would, of course, also fall into the uh, uh, the Sundararajan criticism of positive psychology that uh, if I am developing a generic warrior virtue description, I am sacrificing a fair amount of the particularity that would make the topic itself interesting.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So. And that's part of why I don't want to stop with this book. Uh, This isn't the last word. This is the first shot in an ongoing project uh, to try to work with this. Now, uh, what I will do for my approach is uh, appeal to certain ideas and certain practices within personality psychology. So um, psychologists, like others, uh, are interested in uh, disentangling those aspects of the human condition that are attributable to universal innate human nature from those that are due to external things, a society, history, upbringing. Uh, and then we so uh, the, the nature versus nurture question, of course, but we don't do nature versus nurture because it's complicated, uh, because it's both. Uh, so we want to find out what's What of us is due to universal nature? What of us is due to specifics, nurture, and how do they interact uh, in influencing the shapes of human lives? So one way that we do this is cross-cultural research. So if a pattern is observed in a wide range of diverse cultures, then that at least provides support for the idea that there is something going on here that is universal to human nature. Now, within personality psychology, everybody's favorite example is the five-factor model. Researchers subjected uh, large amounts of data to uh, the statistical technique of factor analysis, and what ended up emerging from that analysis was five fundamental traits as the core of human personality, extroversion, neuroticism, openness, agreeableness, and conscientiousness. So that was originally done in a Western English-speaking Context. So, of course, the question is how do you know that's universal? Uh, how, what happens if you repeat the same factor analytic study? In a different cultural context, and so they did. They they tried it in uh, Western non-English speaking cultures. They they did it in uh, uh, non-Western cultures, and they kept doing it. And the same five traits kept popping up over and over again. Uh, so we can at least make a decent case that there is something about these five personality factors that are not just a cultural particularity, but are something about humanity overall.
0: All right. Let me uh, re- stop and ask you a follow-up here. Okay. Uh, by what means did they discern those patterns in non-Western contexts? Because if you set people up with a certain question prompt, you'll get the answer that that question demands. So, I mean, how did they control for that, or did they?
1: Uh, well, the uh, the basic approach to this was grounded in uh, analysis of the the language. So the idea being if uh, there is, uh, if we're going to try to describe people, and if our way of describing somebody is important, there's probably going to be a number of words for it. Mm-hmm. So reserved versus outgoing, gregarious, withdrawn, it's, um, and uh, those, those different terms are in a sense referring to the same thing. Mm -hmm. in different senses uh so we start with the lexical criteria and then from that create the data analysis uh starting you collecting uh data on how warm gregarious reserved withdrawn etc people are and then looking at how uh what intercorrelations emerge when we start crunching the numbers on those scores so for the the cross-cultural study uh they abandoned English and started from square one with these other languages. Mm -hmm. And in all the, in these other languages, the same five factors kept emerging. So something similar uh, is uh, involved with putting together uh, character strengths and virtues. Uh, When they're putting together the CSV, Mm -hmm. uh, Kathleen Dalsgaard, uh, conducted a cross-cultural examination of virtue terms. Now, this is not exactly the same as the five-factor research, since uh, uh, what Dalsgaard did was a uh, massive cross-cultural literature review rather than a uh, statistical analysis. But what she found was six virtues that keep being endorsed by religious, philosophical, literary traditions all over the world, across cultures, across centuries. Uh, in this case, uh, uh, wisdom, justice, courage, temperance, humanity, and transcendence. Mm-hmm. Uh Now, as a side note, I found it amusing that they did this massive cross-cultural uh, literature analysis and ended up replicating Aquinas. Yeah, <laughs> uh, except they they took uh, faith and hope and s- decided that faith and hope were species of the uh, general category of transcendence.
0: Right, right.
1: So but essentially that they they found very similar. So, now, this doesn't actually provide us with an uh, an actual theory of the virtues. Mm-hmm. But the fact that these same uh, six or seven virtues keep being endorsed over and over and over across cultures and across uh, centuries does lend some credence to the idea that this list of virtues, uh, that these virtues are in some way connected to the general question of being a highly functioning human.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, one observation, then I've got a follow-up question, one more follow-up, I guess. Uh, one is that, you know, this makes a good deal of sense to me. Uh, and again, I like, I like the fact that you distinguish between a statistical analysis and a theory, uh, because the theoretical framework that I would want to set up would have something to do with, you know, the stories that you find in so many mythological and historical traditions of the virtuous foreigner or the virtuous pagan. Uh, and you know, what I notice is that whenever you narrate the virtuous pagan, you always narrate the sorts of virtues that are internal to your own tradition as they appear out there, uh, and it makes sense to me that if you you know create a complex enough network of virtues out there, then you're going to establish something that you can start you know naming intelligibly. So that that's my observation. My quick follow up question: You can comment on that if you want after you've answered this. Uh, to what extent, if at all, did uh, C.S. Lewis's book *The Abolition of Man* Influence your investigation.
1: Uh, sadly, I have not read that one.
0: Oh, fascinating! I think you would find it interesting because that—that that is the move that he makes. The—the uh, the book ends with an appendix of passages from world literature extolling a certain set of virtues.
1: Okay, I'll—I'll I'll put it on the list.
0: Very good, very good. I—and I, see, I guessed entirely wrong, Charles, because I—I read your book and I thought, okay, this is someone who read *Abolition of Man* as a college junior and you know now it's coming forth in this scholarly work and i guess entirely wrong as i so often do <laughs> um well charles marshall virtues ends with a section on courtesy which you regard not as a virtue in its own right but as a medium in which other virtues manifest uh and a brief chapter on narrative the concept that i think of as mcintyre's signature emphasis in philosophical thought uh out of courtesy I'm Mm going to let you take the wheel on this penultimate chapter, but I do want you to wrap up talking about narrative in your own practice. How have the practices of martial arts given shape to your own story, and how do you imagine those practices as story shapers for other folks?
1: Okay. Uh, Well, starting with Courtesy, uh, that chapter uh, was not one that I had originally planned. Ah. Uh, That emerged in the course of the research. So... Uh, what I did to uh, come up with my list of uh, what the warrior virtues are was very similar to what Dalsgaard did. Uh, I did a massive cross-cultural literature review. I, I took a look at uh, um, uh, uh, what, what virtues are being endorsed within the traditions of Bushido, uh, the, the, the Huarang, um, uh, Shaolin... Uh, Buddhism, uh, the, uh, the the chivalric literature, uh, Homeric epics, um, Renaissance ideas about uh, uh, heroism, all sorts of stuff, and one virtue that kept popping up a lot. Uh, so that that should qualify it to be a good candidate for the list was courtesy or politeness. Mm. Uh, but the more I got into the uh, uh, the virtue literature, uh, the more controversy I found over whether or not that technically counts as a virtue. Um, uh, Comte de Sponville, for example, argues that uh, courtesy is not a virtue because it's so easy to fake. Uh, (laughs) So it's it's so superficial that it doesn't actually contribute to moral excellence. Uh, And then what I found was that when I got into the literature um, where... Scholars would call courtesy a genuine virtue. They usually did it by appealing to other virtues. So I would get into one source, and one source would say that uh, courtesy is a virtue because a courteous person uh, is able to keep themselves controlled at all times. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, that's a facet of temperance, uh, so that would make temperance a virtue. Uh, and somebody else would argue that courtesy is a virtue because, uh, a courteous person knows how to effectively interact with others in order to achieve social goals. Well, that's phrenesis. That's mm. practical wisdom. Right, right. Um, so, and pretty much every virtue on the list, including, I found interesting, courage, um, some scholar... Has uh, had argued that courtesy is a virtue because of this other virtue. So from there, I got my, my conclusion was that um, courtesy is not itself a virtue. Uh, I do believe that it's very important, uh, and in the chapter, I go into a few reasons for why courtesy is especially important for uh, in in warrior uh, cultures, well, warrior societies, but. I looked more. I looked at courtesy more as a venue for cultivating and displaying the virtues. So, if being courteous is a form of self-control, then by being courteous, you are in some small way exercising self-control, which is going to make you that tiny bit uh, more more temperate. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's a form of practical wisdom, then that. Makes you a little bit more practically wise. Um, so so that's my argument i, I, I my argument there is that uh, courtesy technically does not go on the list, but only because I'm trying to be specific about what is a virtue and what is not. Uh, however, it is very important, and it is a uh, very useful, very valuable habit. Uh, to get into for a number of genuinely morally relevant reasons.
0: Well, it's interesting. I, I, I actually practiced uh, shorin and Rue in the late 80s, early 90s, and I remember seeing a lot of editorials about courtesy in martial arts magazines back then. So uh, yep. it's something that I've always associated with uh, karate specifically. So, oh,
1: yeah. Uh, Dave Lowry talks a lot about that. Mm-hmm.
0: Very good, very good. Uh, so Charles, do you ever play any chess?
1: Uh, I do. Uh, there's, uh, there's this, uh, guy that I play, uh, online chess with who keeps beating me. Uh, but on the upside, uh, for the most part, he keeps beating me by just a small enough margin, uh, margin that it does not utterly crush my self-esteem <laughs> and keeps me coming back f- for more.
0: Well, there you go. There you go. And, uh, and, by, and then, by the
1: way, uh, uh-huh. by the way, it's your move. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, when our
0: listeners get this, it probably still will be my move. Cause I've been, <laughs> oh, I've been swamped here lately, but, uh. Yeah, For our listeners who don't know, ever since we recorded the episode on chess on the Christian Humanist podcast, uh, Charles and I have been in in an ongoing series of chess games. Uh, I just have the free account, so I have no idea how many games we've actually played, but uh, I'll go on a streak and lose five or six, and then I'll win five or six, and we just go on these lovely streaks, and as Charles said, every one of the games is close enough that... I keep coming back afraid the next time, so I, I need to get some Pavlov in my life, I think. <laughs> well, Charles, I want to thank you on behalf of Christian Humanist Profiles. I've, I've certainly enjoyed this conversation. Uh, and bite. I'm going to give you the last word here. What do you, you want our listeners to hear last before we sign off?
1: Everybody should buy my book because I get a 7.5% royalty.
0: Excellent. This is Christian Humanist Profiles. (laughs) Thank you for listening.